Commandment number four is where we find ourselves together today. So Exodus chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11 together today. I had the privilege of being able to go to Israel a couple of years ago. And if you've never been to Israel, it is an epic epic thing that you've got to do. We're actually taking our first trip to Israel this September. I could, could not be more excited. It's going to be an amazing time being able to go and uh, go through the, the land of Israel and being able to see just uh, the places that you read about in scripture. It puts this vivid imagery in your head. And I remember one of the days we were actually driving through Jerusalem on Saturday. And as we're doing that, there are these uh, Hasidic Jews. I don't know if you, you know what that means, but think of people dressed like from the early 1900s, all black dudes with these top hats on, right? And, and the, the ladies wearing black dresses. So there are these Hasidic Jews and they're actually standing in the street yelling at the bus as we drive by and they're like blocking traffic with their family, right? Their kids and wives and they're all just standing in the middle of the road and uh, they're screaming at the bus. And I'm like, man, these people hate buses. Um, and it wasn't that they were mad at the bus. It was that we were doing what we were doing on Saturday, which is the Sabbath day. And uh, they, were, they were just very uh, zealous for the law and, uh, you know, yelling at not only our bus, but also other cars as they were passing by because traveling and operating a bus on the Sabbath day, Sabbath day was violating that law. And in fact, the people there in, uh, in Israel or even here today, what they'll do is they'll, they'll do things like leave lights on um, from the night before because operating a switch constitutes doing work. And so they won't, they won't actually operate a switch, you know, or, or if they forgot to leave the lights on from the night before so that they're on the next day, then what they'll do is they'll uh, use candles or things like that. And in fact, I remember also when we were in Israel, there's two sets of elevators in most hotels. One of them is just a regular elevator. You know, you just get in and you put whatever floor you want to go into on. And, and there's another set of elevators that are called Sabbath elevators. And what these elevators do is they're pre-programmed to stop at every floor so you don't have to push a button to do any work, right? And that's, that's the way, that's the mentality that the people have when approaching the idea of the Sabbath day. And today, as we look at commandment number four, it's the idea of remember the Sabbath. And, and this one, number four, is actually the final commandment in the first set of four. So the first four are dealing directly with our relationship with God, and then the next six are dealing directly with our relationship with people. And this is the final one in that division. And one of the things we've noted in this is that God starts with himself in the commandments, in the Ten Commandments, before he gives us anything else to do. Because everything else finds its right place when God is in his right place. And so he's establishing himself first. This is, this is who I am. This is how you worship me. This is how I'm distinct and separate and different. And as he establishes that, then all of the other things naturally flow. And we've said it before, but it's worth repeating again. This is not some sort of speculation about God, but the Ten Commandments are revelation of God. This is God revealing himself to us. And the Sabbath day is much less about regulation from God, and it's much more about revelation of God. And so that's really what I hope we grasp today as we look at this idea of the Sabbath law. So here's our big idea as we look at the Sabbath um, to, together today, the, the remembering the Sabbath. It's this, that God's creative order is for his glory and our good. God's creative order is for his glory 
and our good. So let's read Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11 together today, and then we'll go back through and break it down. Exodus 20, verse 8 says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us. God, we pray that you would help us to see clearly what your word has to say, that we would understand you more deeply and more fully, and that we would see how uh, you have given us your law and your way for your glory and our good. Show us how we can submit to you, Lord, in your way, and give us the courage to follow you by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today as we look at this uh, fourth commandment, we're going to look at it in four parts. Uh, we're going to look at verse 8, the Sabbath's presentation, verses 9 and 10, the Sabbath's clarification, verse 11, the Sabbath's foundation, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time on the Sabbath's application. W what does it mean for me? What do I do with all of this now that I understand what it's, what's going on with it? Now, throughout the Ten Commandments, God is revealing the necessary components to us that are the things that address the moral guidelines for life. If you get these things right, then things in life just sort of find their place. They, they all kind of uh, work together. And what they do is they actually cause the family and the, the society to function as designed. And we've got to be careful with this because when we, when we look at this, uh, we look at how this is designed, that violating these Ten Commandments what happens is we see that it unravels the foundation of life itself. And that's exactly what we see taking place within our culture, within our communities, within our, our nation and around the world. That as we violate these things, as we go against these things and we rebel against God's way and his stuff, what we see happening is it actually undermines the foundation of how life works completely. And so other things fall apart around all of that. There's no freedom in abandoning all of this. There's only destruction that, that happens with this. So let's look at this first part, number one, the Sabbath's presentation. Look back at verse eight. It says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This verse, verse eight, actually sums up the entire commandment. There really isn't a whole lot of need for the following verses in terms of the commandment's summation, but the rest of the three verses are there to clarify and help us to understand how, how do we do this? What does this mean? And so God gives us a little bit more in this. Now the first word there is, is a, a unique word to this commandment. It's the word remember. That, that, you, that word is not used in any of the other commandments, the idea of remembering. The, the rest of them are, you should do this or don't do that or uh, wh whatever it, it happens to be. But remember is unique to this commandment. And, and the idea of remembering, it's a lot, it's more than just uh, recalling something that happened in the past. It's, it's not just, you know, hey, remember that one time when we were out doing this thing and that, and that happened. Um, it's, it's not that. It's not even just remembering uh, some stuff that God did in the past. It, the idea of remembering is to take the thing that's in the past to bring it into the present and carry it into the future. That's the idea of remembering. It's a lot more than just uh, you know, recounting historical facts or some happenings. In this, God wants his people to remember something. And he's very specific. He's very direct with what he wants them to remember there. Look at verse 8. Remember 
the Sabbath day. This is exactly what God is targeting, this concept of the Sabbath day. So take this idea of the Sabbath day, remember it in the past, let's bring it into present day, and let's carry it into the future. Now, as we look at this, the Sabbath day, there's really no translate, this word Sabbath, it's not a translation, because there's no English word for Sabbath. We don't have a word for Sabbath. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word uh, Shabbat or Shabbat. Uh, and so that's, that's really what it is. Uh, it's, it, there's no English word for it. And what it means is to cease, to rest, or to put an end to. That, that's the idea of Shabbat or Sabbath. To cease, rest, or put an end to. And now, in this, what God is saying is that there's a specific day that God wants his people to stop all their normal stuff and treat it differently. That's where we get, look at the end of verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God says this day is separate. This day is distinct. This day is unique. It's not like the rest of the other days that you have. This is one that is separated. And we're actually going to target the idea of holiness a little bit more in depth later on this morning. But uh, just suffice it to say that it's to be different. That essentially what God is saying is you've got six days for common things. And I want you to treat this day different than all of those other days. This is to be a a different kind of a thing. Now, in our American mind, as we read this, and it says there, you know, uh, you shall not take, uh, excuse me, uh, I'm reading verse seven. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And, and then following it says six days you shall do your work and then you get a seventh day for rest. We might think as we read that in our American minds, wow, you get a whole day off. Woohoo! You know, like, oh, what a, what a great thing. And, and the reason for that is because we come at it from our perspective. And in a, in a per, uh, common, pretty regular American kind of a, a, a work schedule, you get two days off in a weekend. And really the reason why is because when we go back to, uh, you know, the early, uh, early in America, when the nation was being founded, they were trying to figure out, you know, what day do we use for the Sabbath? And there was a, a sharp debate over it. And so because they couldn't really figure it out, they said, well, you get both. And that's really where it came from. So uh, that's why we have two days off. Um, But uh, when you look at this, you know, you got to understand that this whole Sabbath thing and God saying you get a day off. Remember, these are Jewish um, prisoners that were enslaved in Egypt. They'd been slaves for generations. And as slaves, they never knew a day off. They were perpetually, constantly working. And so in their mind, there's no sarcasm. They're thinking, wow, God, you're so good. You're so gracious. You're actually going to give us a day off to, to do nothing? What a great gift from the Lord. Secondly, not only do we, see, do we see the presentation of the Sabbath, but secondly, we see the clarification of the Sabbath in verses 9 and 10. So here in verses 9 and 10, God really gives us some more de- definite um, direction on what does he mean by this idea of taking this day off. And, and what he does here is in verses 9 and 10, the, the Sabbath day commandment is divided into two parts. And the two parts are labor and rest. There's two parts to the Sabbath day uh, commandment. And both are equally vital to getting this right. That, that you got to understand both of these in order to do this correctly. Now, you're going to have a natural proclivity, a natural tendency toward one or the other. You're either going to really like rest and, you know, your, your goal for the day is how much can I sit and uh, hang out at the, on the couch? And, uh, you know, or maybe your, your proclivity and tendency is I'll just work and work and work and work and work. And someone's got to come along and say, hey, bro, 
maybe you should take a rest. You, you have a tendency on this toward one or the other, and God addresses both of them. Look there at verse 9. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Um, here in this, uh, God gives very little attention to this, and that's uh, you know because Israel, in, as a nation, they didn't really need much on this one. They understood the idea of labor. They knew what it was to, to work and to work and to work. And so God says, just do that for six days, but we can miss it. In, in fact, in our culture, I don't, I don't know if you have this mentality or maybe you've heard somebody express this, but we can actually think that work is this necessary evil that we only do as much as we have to and get away from as soon as possible. That, that work is this thing that's a result of the fall of humanity, and I just have to endure this thing, this necessary evil, and then I die. And that's, hey, that's, that's life. Thank you so much for that. And that's just a wrong way to view work. If you view work that way, you're going to avoid it. If you view work that way, you're going to think it's some sort of curse. You're going to think that it's some sort of thing that God's looking to punish you with instead of something that you can use to honor and worship God with. Um, here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, I want to put it on the screen for you. It says this, The Lord God plant, uh, placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Um, just quick math. Two comes before three. Um, I know that's, you're like, wow, that's so profound. Two comes before three. Well, in Genesis chapter three is when the fall of man happens. But God gives Adam work before the fall. So, so work is not, it's not this thing that happened as a result of the fall. It's not this necessary evil to endure. It's a good thing. It's necessary for you to work. Adam was given work and Eve was given to help him. Uh, and they had different jobs, but they both we're doing labor. Um, you know, a lot of my wife, she stayed at home raising our children as a stay-at-home mom for a number of years. It's only been recently that she sort of entered the workforce again in a couple of different ways. And, uh, you know, for a long time, people would ask her, hey, wh you know, what do you do for work? And uh, she kind of had this conflict inside her, like, how do I explain this? Um, you know, because when you say, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom, people kind of, you know, typically go, ha, 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 well, that's cute. Um, and to which I say, you don't even know what that means. Like, she works way harder. I go to the job to get rest from the work that she's doing. Uh, it is a lot of work to care for the home and the family and to raise the heathens that are trying to destroy the, the home and, the, and each other. It's just a lot of work and effort that goes along with that. And so when I say work, I don't mean you go to a place where they give you a paycheck necessarily, okay? There's a lot of things that are uh, encompassing this idea of labor. Um, you see, the thing is, God commands work because his intended purpose for you is your productivity. He didn't, he didn't create you to just exist. He didn't create you to just slunk through life and just to get to the end and go, well, there you go. No, God created you and intended productivity from you, that, that he has a designed purpose for you. And, and it's up to us to pursue the Lord and to find out what that is. Have you ever looked into the eyes of maybe a cow or a goat or something? Um, I don't know if you have, but uh, there's not a lot happening. They just, they're just kind of there, you know? Um, and sometimes that happens to people as well. They just kind of go through the motions of life. They're just existing. And God wants so much more for you than just existing. And part of it is finding out, God, what have you made me to labor for? 
What should I be working for? Now, some people are in this, they're afraid of burnout. And uh, typically these people, they get up at the crack of noon, they uh, take a nap, and their uh, ambition in life is to beat their next video game. And to, to you, I would say, you're not gonna burn out. You should probably get more than a part-time job. Go do something, be productive, and let's move forward in some of this stuff. Uh, you're, you're not gonna burn yourself out. Uh, you see, they're afraid of labor, but here's the idea. Labor means submission to God's way. That's what it happens, it's really all about. God has designed me to work, and so when I work, when I labor, when I work hard, when I'm exhausted at the end of the day and I've spent my life on something, that's a good thing, and I'm submitting to God's creative order. This is, this is how God has designed me. If we see labor as the enemy, then we're gonna tend toward laziness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says it like this. Even um, while we were with you, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. It's, it's just part of the way God has made things. That you're not serving people who are lazy by providing food for them. You're not helping them. They need to work with their own hands. In fact, when we do that, when I give to somebody who's fully capable of providing for themselves and I give to them, what I do is I rob them of their dignity. I rob them of their God-given capacity and ability in the way God's designed them to work and provide for themselves. And so we've got to be careful not to allow this uh, religious view to, to cloud our thoughts on what labor really is. Secondly, not only does God address labor, but then in verse 10, he addresses the idea of Rest. Now, Israel needed a lot more direction here, and so God gives clarification in two ways. Look there in verse 10. It says, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, your, you your, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. So the two clarifications that God gives is, one, no work. When I mean rest, what I mean is, Rest. Don't do any work. Don't, don't go and you know, do your job or get another job and get a side hustle and do that uh, over here and, and, and try to uh, get some more labor going on over there. He says, just rest. It's a God-given, gracious gift of rest. Now, this is not to, meant to be a religious weight. It's meant to be a wing. Not, not something that holds you down, but something that lifts you up. And one of the things that Jesus had serious issue with, especially uh, with the, the, um, the religious leaders of the, the time in his day, was that they were perpetually putting weights on people. They were telling people, you know, hey, you can't travel so far. And so people used to actually do crazy things like they would have these strings. They'd have this like ball of string and they would attach it to their house and then they could only go so far as the string let them go. And so they'd be carrying this string around and trying to, you know, make sure that they didn't get too far far away. Um, and in fact, Jesus, even on this, uh, he would purposefully heal people on the Sabbath. And, and they, would have a, they would lose their minds. The, the Pharisees would lose their minds saying, is it, you're, you're breaking the Sabbath law. And, and the truth is, Jesus didn't break any of the Sabbath law whatsoever. Yes, he did violate their extra laws that they added to it, the man-made laws, but he did not break God's law at all. And so in this, Jesus is completely fulfilling this. He saw it as what it was, not this religious weight. Not only is it that no work is to be done, but secondly, it's a gift for everyone, not just someone. Do you see that there? God clarifies, you don't work, your son, your daughter, your servants, not your cows, not even the people who are visiting. 
Not, not even visitors. They can't work either. And, and so God says, this is for everyone, not just someone. Because the tendency that we have as people is that we uh, have the tendency to force others to work while we rest. That, that we say, well, you work and I'm just going to kick back and I'm going to rest. And we have a tendency to create these sort of classes within culture where that takes place. And this would take them right back to the Egyptian slavery that God freed them from. This is exactly what they were just freed from. And so God says, we're not going to do that. We're not going back to that. Now, you know, before we're going to get into this a little bit later on, but before you get crazy about, well, what day does that mean? I mean, how do we do all this or whatever? Um, the, the truth is that it has much more to do with the attitude that you bring to it than it does with the day you bring to it. You know, some people, they work on, uh, they work on Sundays and they can't, they can't go to church or they work on Saturdays and they can't, they can't give that day of rest or whatever it happens to be, but your day off is Tuesday or whatever it happens to be. That, that's, it has much less to do with uh, the day itself and much more to do with the attitude of rest that you, pr- you give to it. Now in this, one of the things that takes place is that we have a tendency as a people to violate this. We have a tendency as a people to violate this idea of, of rest. We don't rest correctly. And so because we don't rest correctly, we're running ourselves into the ground and we, we beat ourselves up. It's, it's like, you know, probably your daily routine looks something like, you know, you wake up in the morning and the first thing that you do is you grab a cup of coffee. Yeah, I mean, if you're me, I grab a cup of coffee. And my cup of coffee actually holds about three cups of coffee uh, because... I like me some coffee. And so, you know, you drink your coffee and your day is going on and then, you, you know, it's about mid-morning and you're like, you know what, um, I'm hungry, I need to grab a Snickers or something, you know, and so you get a, a, some, sort of, some sort of sugar, you know, going on there and then later on the afternoon comes, you're like, oh, I'm crashing, I gotta get something else, I'm, I, I'm gonna get some more coffee or get some more caffeine somehow and, uh, you know, on my way home, I'm gonna stop by the gas station and grab a Rockstar, that was my habit uh, that I had for a long time and, you know, just try to get some more caffeine back into my system and to, to uh, you know, get more going on and get home and drink some more sugar or eat some more sugar. And then, uh, you know, I'm laying in my bed at night and I can't sleep even though I'm exhausted and I'm wondering why, you know, uh, like, why, why am I so amped up? Well, I've been medicating myself with this, uh, this uh, caffeine and sugar all day long. And so it's, it's bra- you know, wrecking my system. Then I wake up drained and start all over again. Right? Anybody, anybody identify with that one? Um, you, don't have to, yeah, you don't have to confess your sin right now, but we know it's you. Um, the, the thing is that this is, we call that America, don't we? That's just how people live in our culture. They're just constantly doing this. And, and as a result, you're exhausted and you're not resting and you're ingesting garbage to make up for you're not resting. And it's this cycle that you continue to chase. Some of you are, 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 are doing this and it's, it's, it's hurting uh, you and all of uh, what's going on in, in, in your life. You know, instead of ingesting stimulants, we need to rest correctly. Um, and so, um, you know, in this, some, some people are driven, get stu- stuff done people, and they're afraid that if they take their foot off the gas that everything's gonna fall apart. Maybe, maybe you feel like that. I, I feel like that a lot. It's one of those things that I have a hard time with. I've gotta, I've gotta stop and pause and rest on purpose, and if I don't, then if I, I'm afraid, if I do, it's, that's where everything falls apart. You see, rest is trusting in God. Where labor is submission to God, rest is trusting in God. And if we see rest as the enemy, then we're gonna tend toward overwork. Look at verse 11, in our third part here, the Sabbath's 
foundation. Verse 11 says this, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. You see, God gives the reason behind the Sabbath law. The words for and therefore help us to grasp this idea that God is telling us this for a reason. There's a purpose behind it, and he gives us two of these purposes, that it's for God's glory and it's for our good. And this is always how God works. This is always the way that God does things. I, I tend to avoid words that are so extreme like always, but this is true of this kind of an idea, that when God does things, it's always for his glory, and it's always for your good. Even if it doesn't feel like it, even if it's hard for you to grasp the idea, like how could this be for my good? God, this seems restrictive, this seems painful, this seems difficult, this seems like you're just mean and I don't really like it. Uh, but no, if I'm gonna submit to the things of the Lord, I'm gonna realize even if it feels weird, it's for his glory and for my good. That's the way that it always, always works. You see, God points to himself as the reason for this pattern. God says, I worked six days and I rested one. Now, when God says that he rested, it wasn't that he got tired and he had to take a nap and he was just, you know, you know really uh, exhausted that day. God is inexhaustible. He didn't run out of energy. He didn't, you know, get some sore muscles and it was really hard to create creation. Although the entirety of the universe, no, he spoke and it all flew out. It's very simple for the Lord to do. It's not that he got tired the way that we get tired, but he rested, meaning he was done. He was finished. He was completed with the work. And God's pattern in this, through Genesis chapter 1, when you look at that, is evening and morning, right? As you read through Genesis 1, you see evening and morning. That's the way God has designed things to work. In fact, the way the Jewish mind works, the day starts at sundown. It doesn't start when your alarm goes off. And, and for most of us, that's how our day starts. And if your day starts when your alarm goes off, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Here's the way that I, I would say it to you, that many of the issues that we have in our exhaustion come from the way we treat sundown yesterday. That, that if, if I have evening discipline, then I have morning readiness. If you start treating your day as starting when the sun goes down, and how am I going to organize and discipline that time, then your morning is going to go much, much more smoothly. If your morning's chaos, then I will tell you the reason it's chaos is because of what you did last night. It has very little to do with what you're doing in the morning. And so we need to submit to the way that God has designed and orchestrated life, orchestrated life. Two times in human history, uh, there have been communist, atheistic nations who've tried to abandon this seven-day cycle that God has put his people on. They try to say, we're not going to do a seven-day week because we believe that, you know, we don't want anything about God to be a part of our culture and our society, once in France, once in Russia. And what ended up happening as they abandoned a seven-day week is it failed both times and they went back. There's just something ingrained into us that we need a seven-day week. There's a cycle that our lives are on based around God. So the first thing that we see that it's all about is God's glory. That God alone is the one who is holy. That when he says there, look at verse 11. It says, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That's another way of saying that it's holy. It's hearkening us back to the very beginning in verse 8 when it says uh, that he, he says to keep it 
holy. When we think about the idea of holiness, when we think about uh, what, what is holy, we've got to start with God. He's the one who's holy. And so when the Sabbath day is honored as holy, it's a way of glorifying and honoring God. Not the day, the God who made the day. It's, it's honoring and glorifying him. Anything that's referred to as holy, whether it's a day like the Sabbath day or a, a person, if you would say that's a, a holy person, or even the angels, holy angels, all of them are a reflection of the holiness of God. They don't have any holiness in and of themselves. They only reflect the holiness of God. It's not that I have holiness and glory. It's that I am so as a result of my ability to reflect the holiness and glory of the Lord. Here's how A.W. Tozer says it. He says, the holiness of God is the moral quality of God. This is a little more familiar, a little more understandable, and not quite so terrifying to the soul. We are drawn as Christians to that which is pure. God's nature is unspeakably pure, sinless, spotless, immaculate, stainless, and with, a, with an absolute fullness of purity that words can never express. God is a holy God. You can always be sure that God is all right. That can be uh, the very basis of all your thinking about God. God is all right. God is holy. God is pure. So the holiness of the Sabbath has very little to do with the day and has very much to do with who it's focused on. That, that's where it doesn't matter. Is it, should we do Saturday? Should we do Sunday? Should we do Wednesday? What, what day should it be? It has very little to do with the day and has very much to do with who the focus is placed on. Is this for God's glory? Not, not only is God's glory the reason, but our good. Our good is a major reason for this as well, that resting is a good gift from our good God. And when we pattern our lives after the Lord, we live the way that he's designed. When we submit ourselves to the way that God's designed things and we do it his way, we pattern ourselves after a six and one and we start our morning in the evening, our day starts at sundown, then we start to pattern ourselves the way that God has designed it. And when we submit that to that reality, then we realize that we're not in control and God has it all covered. One of the things that you can do, and, and one of the things I've tried to uh, institute in teaching our kids as we pray at night, is, is part of this, this prayer. That when you are going to sleep, it's to recognize that God does not need sleep. And that sleep in and of itself, the fact that you must close your eyes and recharge your life, your, your battery, if you will, the fact that you have to do that and God does not, puts you in a position of humility. You can say, God, you're bigger, you're greater, you're more glorious, you're, you don't need this. And that while I close my eyes, I'm trusting that you have everything else taken care of. I don't need to sit up at night and worry and fret over all of these things. You're in control. You know what's right. You know what's good. And I don't have to, I don't have to try to control it myself. I can trust you that you've got it all taken care of. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your help. He just needs your Submission. And when you do that, it's for his glory and your good. All right, fourthly and finally, what we want to look at, now that we've covered the idea of the Sabbath, I want to take some time for the rest of our time to look at application. How do we actually apply this to our lives? I mean, what does this actually look like? What do New Testament Christians do? Because if you were to talk to maybe your Jewish friend or your Seventh-day Adventist friend, then they're going to make a very strong biblical case from your Bible uh, as to saying that you are doing it wrong. 
And when you look at that, you might lose your mind and go, oh no, I'm violating the Sabbath law by not doing this on Saturday. That Saturday's the day that God chose. So, so what do we do? How do we process through this? What does it mean for a New Testament Christian? And so what I want to do is walk through three reasons why we do Sabbath the way that we do in terms of application. So the first reason is because uh, when we look to Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the centerpiece of everything for us. When we look to Jesus, that we see that when Jesus went to the cross, he died and he was buried and he rose from the dead on what day? Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it changed everything. He was no longer just this Jewish guy that was executed by the Roman government. He was not just some, uh, another guy that, that died and was buried and oh, now we have to have a funeral and that's sad. When Jesus rose from the dead, it changed everything. The entirety of Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. That he defeated sin, he defeated death, and he did it for you and he did it for me. And that in his resurrection, he changed everything. Now we have access to God. Now we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and become the temple of God. Now we can be empowered by God to live sinless lives. That we can abandon sin and press on toward purity and not not sin less but sinning less right does that make sense not that I become perfect but that I'm becoming that in Christ that the more I'm submitted to him the more I grow in him and now in that not only does all of that change including including when we gather and worship and rest in Acts chapter 20 verse 7 it says it like this on the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them, and since uh, he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. You're never allowed to complain about the length of my sermon. I've never preached till midnight. <laughs> when, when did they do this? The first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday. I know that you might think of it as Monday, but for, you know, the, the calendar, the way that it works, the first day of the week is Sunday. And in the Jewish calendar, this would be the day that they would go back to work. This would be like our Mondays when they go back to work, go back to school, do all the stuff that they're going to do. Uh, and so on Sunday, they would gather together on the first day of the week. Why? Because they were commemorating the resurrection of Jesus. And so we carry that down even till today. So that's reason number one. Reason number two Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly on my behalf, not as my example. Jesus fulfilled the law for you. And in doing so, we're not bound to the law the way that we were, uh, that the Old Testament Jews were bound to the law. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, don't misunderstand why I've come. Jesus is speaking. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. That Jesus fulfills the reason of the law. That the purpose for the law is fulfilled in Christ. And so because Jesus has completely wholeheartedly without even a, a small variation from it satisfied all of the requirements of the law he's done it on our behalf and in doing so we are uh, seen as uh, law fulfilled now not only that but thirdly the third reason is that the sabbath law 
is the only law that is not repeated in the New Testament. When we look at the Ten Commandments, uh, all, all, all the, the rest of the nine are all repeated in the New Testament. Uh, but the Sabbath is absent. It's, it's this one that's not really there. It's not repeated the way that it is in the Old Testament. Now, here's something that, that you gotta be careful with because that thought process can put us on really shaky ground, can't it? Once I start looking at that and going, well, maybe there's some things that I do, you know, take and there's other things that I don't take. And then, well, who becomes the standard of that? You, do you? And then uh, all of a sudden you can just change the law to mean whatever you want it to mean. And then you get all of the cultural issues that we have in our culture today where people are able to do whatever they want and they can call it good because they just say so. So here's the question I would ask you. Are Christians bound by the Old Testament law? You're all afraid to answer because you're like, well, I don't really know. And I understand why. So maybe, <laughs> are we bound by the Old Testament law? Well, no, I'm not bound by the Old Testament law. Okay, well, what about you shouldn't murder or steal? Should, are we bound by that one? Well, now you're rethinking it. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe some of them. I like some of them. I don't like all of them. So what do we do? I mean, are you sinning right now because you're wearing a shirt that has a uh, poly and cotton blend in it and uh, the law says not to do that? Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm gonna guess that half of you have tattoos and so now you're violating the law on that. What, like, what do we do? Where, where do we stand on these kinds of things? Galatians chapter three, verses 24 through 25 say this. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Let me try to explain it this way. That, that as we're looking at this, Paul uses an analogy. And in what he, the analogy he's using is school. He says that the law is like school. And the, the, there's a purpose to going to school. And what you have to do in going to school, there are a number of rules and laws that you have to follow in order to graduate, right? You've got to take a certain number of classes. You've got to have a certain number of hours. Uh, you have to, you know, you can't just be, um, you can't be absent all the time. You have to be a certain number of days. You've got to be there. Uh, you have to have a certain GPA, have certain grades, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but also, uh, there's, there's stuff within that. The, the laws of school is you can't uh, steal from other, other kids, right? That's a problem with school. You'll get kicked out of school for doing that. You can't punch other kids in the face because you don't like them. You definitely can't murder other kids or teachers, right? Like that's a bad thing in school. You can't do those things. There are laws that are associated with school that you cannot do. Now, for me, as you do that, when you are able to uh, fulfill all the requirements, then you graduate. You graduate from school. Now, for me, I've, thank, praise the Lord, I've graduated from school. And so tomorrow morning, I don't have to report at my class. I don't have to do a chemistry lab. And I don't have to go through the motions of those kinds of things. And so I have, I've passed school. I've gotten out of school. And because of that, I have graduated. And, and, and yet, even though I don't have to report to school in the morning, I still can't murder, right? Like there's some laws that transcend school. And so too it is with the law. The law's purpose and according to Galatians, is to get us to Jesus. The law's purpose isn't to say, here's how great I am, here's how many laws I fulfilled, here's how God should let me into his family, here's how I'm better than you. 
That's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to say, I need Jesus. I can't satisfy this on my own. I'm never going to be good enough to get into heaven. I'm never going to be able to fulfill enough of the law in order for it to allow me to have right standing before God. No, I'm drawn to Jesus, God who put on human flesh to, to live sinlessly, fulfill the law on my behalf, pay the price for my sin and give me access to heaven. That's the point of the law. And if we see it incorrectly, then we treat it incorrectly. And so the point of the purpose, the purpose of the law is to get us to Jesus. And faith in Jesus is how I graduate from the law. Because it's Jesus' report card. It's his transcript that the Lord looks at, not mine. It's his transcript. But in that, there are some laws that still apply. So how do we process this? Well, let me give it to you this way. There are two types of laws in the Old Testament. There are ceremonial laws and there are moral laws. Ceremonial laws and moral laws. The ceremonial laws foreshadow Jesus and they are fulfilled in him. We're no longer bound to these laws. They're fulfilled in Jesus. It's uh, um, like uh, in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, when uh, the Lord tells Peter, um, he, he's going to take him to the Gentiles. And the, the, uh, the gospel is going to go to those who are no, not Jewish, those who are outside of the Jewish faith. And in that, God brings down this sheet. He gives Peter a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven. And there are all sorts of unclean animals on the sheet. And God says, hey, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And, and Peter's like, uh, nope. I'm a good Jewish boy. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. There is no way I'm going to violate this law. I know that that's not good. And God's response to him is in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, but the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This is a, an, an example of ceremonial law. It's, it's not something that it has to do with morality. It has to do with ceremony. And all of those things are fulfilled in Jesus but there is still moral law. And moral law reveals Jesus' perfection. And it is um, fulfilled by him. The moral law is fulfilled in him. And the, excuse me, the ceremonial law is fulfilled in him. And the moral law is fulfilled by him. And my ability to keep the law, the moral law, is, is from Jesus. I'm still bound to these I'm still bound to, you can't murder, you can't steal, all that kind of stuff, and can't commit adultery. We're going to get into all of those things as we continue on through the Ten Commandments. They still apply because they're moral law, not ceremonial law. Now, with some of these laws like the Sabbath, we move it from the category of law to the category of wisdom, right? There is still wisdom in keeping the Sabbath, is there not? Because it's for your good. You need a rest, you cannot just keep going and going and going and going. And if you do, you're going to break down. You're going to ruin and hurt your body. You're going to ruin the relationships you have around you. You're going to feel like a crazy person. And you've got to take a rest. And even though it's not a, a law in the New Testament, you have to do this. It's, a, it's, it's something that goes into the category of wisdom where it's a good idea to do this. See this as a good gift from your good God. You see... Jesus has done all the heavy lifting for you. He's completed the work. He's done all that's necessary. In John chapter 19, verse 30, it says this, when Jesus tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus fulfilled the law. He did the, that, that it is finished. That is, that is to say, the work is done. 
There's no more work to be done. And Jesus now has, has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The, the seated position isn't because he feels lazy. It's to signify the work's done. I don't need to stand up and work any longer. It's completed. And so when I trust in that, then, then I'm in the position of receiving God's grace. You see, whatever you're trying to do to get your life together, Whatever law you're trying to, to hold to, whatever thing you're trying to say, well, if I just, if I just did this, then things would kind of work together. You, you gotta quit. Stop trying to, to keep your life together. Stop trying to put it all together and instead trust in the finished work of Jesus because through him, you're going to be made right with God and everything else finds its place. He alone forgives sin. He alone sets your life in the right order and he alone gives everything its correct purpose and correct meaning. Beyond that, as we move forward, it's staying close to Jesus because he has the ability and, and as we stay close to Jesus is praying for the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. God, would you help me to, to be sensitive to you, to know which way to go, that, that you can correct my path, that, that he is able to uh, convict you of the things that need to be abandoned in your life and the things that need to be adjusted in your life. They're not all the same. And so there's some things that need to be abandoned. Hebrews 12 talks about the weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. There are some things that need to be abandoned in your life that aren't sinful, but they still need to be abandoned. And there's other things that just need to be adjusted in your life. Just, just let's, let's rein back on that or let's push forward a little bit more in that. And so I don't know where you stand. I don't know what your tendency and your proclivity is. I don't know where your, your, uh, you, you tend to lean on more of the, the, the lazy side and you need a kick in the pants to go get a real job. Or maybe you're on the side of you just work and work and work and you're beating your head against the wall and you're wondering why it's so hard. Maybe take a break. Maybe trust that God has it under control and you're not the one that needs to do everything. And so in that, we need to rest in the Lord. Write down, if you would, Hebrews chapter four. We're not gonna turn there for time's sake, but I would encourage you read Hebrews chapter four because what it talks about is that um, the, the people of Israel would not enter into God's rest. They rebelled against God's rest. And because they rebelled against God's rest, they weren't able to have everything that God had for them. You see, the rest, the, what it's talking about when it's talking about rest is a uh, physically going into the promised land for those people. But for us, it's to know and believe that Jesus' work on your behalf is enough. You see, therefore, when you work, it's from the position of salvation, not for salvation. Remember when we started the Ten Commandments, how God, he, he lays out for them very, in the very beginning, this is what you do because you're my kids. This isn't what you do to become my kids. And so, so here we, we wrap this full circle around again here with this Sabbath command that it's, it's for God's glory and it's for your good and our rest is found in Jesus. He is where we find that place of, of rest. And then we can, we can labor, we can work to exhaustion in Christ for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love today. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word together, to be able to engage with you and who you are. And we pray that you would help us to understand this Sabbath law and to be able to apply it correctly. God, I pray for those who need uh, to take a rest. They need to take a break. They're just overworking themselves and running themselves into the ground. Lord, would you give them uh, the ability not just to feel the conviction of your spirit, but to actually follow through and to take a break, to trust you. 
And for those who need to give themselves to some work, they need to do some stuff that's productive, Lord, would you give them the ability and show them where and show them how. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for you. Jesus, uh, we are grateful that you have done all the work for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.